0: One, two, three. Testing 123, testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Radio Free Mormon Defender of the Faith. Thirty years ago, back in 1989, I created and taught a class for the Institute program at the University of Texas at Austin, where I was at the time completing my final semester of Law School. Tonight's episode contains the second lecture in that series. Now, one of my personal failings is that I tend to overprepare for a presentation with the result that I have a lot more to talk about than I usually have time to talk about it in. As I listen to these lectures from 30 years ago, I see that I haven't changed that much in this regard. The second lecture was supposed to cover seven commonly heard criticisms about the Book of Mormon, but I had done so much research on the subject that it ended up taking two lectures to cover that material and not one. As you listen to this lecture, you will hear that I discover this only toward the end of this lecture, that I'm not going to be able to cover all the material I had planned to cover, and that I'm going to have to go into Lecture 3 to cover the rest of it. So, Lectures 2 and 3 will cover commonly heard criticisms about the Book of Mormon. There are also a couple of places toward the end of this lecture where I am using overheads. It was an old device called an Overhead Projector, where I could make copies of things out of books or manuals that I wanted to show the class But instead of copying them onto paper, there was a special machine that I could use to copy them onto clear plastic. The plastic sheet would then be put onto an overhead projector, which would shine a bright light through the plastic, up through a lens, and onto the wall behind me. I think I do a pretty good job of explaining what it is that's on these projections. So there shouldn't be too much confusion on that score. I think it only right to give credit to Van Hale and Bill Forrest, the creators and proprietors of Mormon's Miscellaneous back in the 1980s. They produced a number of items, I think they call them scrapbooks, in which they had different illustrations and even humorous drawings relating to the subject of Mormon apologetics. Van Hale continues to have a radio show in Salt Lake City on Sunday evenings called Mormon's Miscellaneous. I bring this up to give them due credit and also by way of showing once again that I was up to my neck in researching and studying Mormon apologetics in the 1980s. These lectures are a culmination of that research. But I wanted to let you know what was going on in the classroom so that you can visualize it as accurately as possible. I have not listened to these lectures in 30 years and as I listen to them I have to confess that I am somewhat impressed with Radio Free Mormon's knowledge research, and grasp of the subject. Dr. Strange may be the master of the mystic arts, but Radio Free Mormon was master of the Mormon apologetic arts. So with that introduction, I'm pleased to roll back the clock, 30 years to 1989, for the second lecture in my institute class titled, Defending the Faith. Play the tape. As I said last week, today's class, we're going to deal with certain
1: questions raised concerning the Book of Mormon. Now, some of these questions are, are legitimate questions that people might have concerning the Book of Mormon. Some of them are less legitimate, I think, but you can make your own decisions as you go along. Basically, what we're going to cover is, I believe, about seven questions, and in my experience, they're the seven most frequently asked questions concerning the Book of Mormon. Uh, the first question, uh, just to give you an overview of what we'll be covering, is uh, basically that uh, why should the Book of Mormon exist at all? Why is there a need for a Book of Mormon? Question number two is, uh, why is the Book of Mormon written in King James English? Question number three, uh, why does the Book of Mormon quote the Bible? Question number four, why are there so many changes that have been made since the first edition of the Book of Mormon? What's the reason for that? Question number five, why, or does, the Book of Mormon quote Shakespeare? Question number six deals with the Solomon Spalding theory. And question number seven uh, is, why does the Book of Mormon say that Christ would be born at Jerusalem, when, of course, any fool knows that Christ was born in Bethlehem? All right. Let's I begin then. The animals. You left out one of the big ones there. Horses and, uh, and elephants. And yes, but that's going to come later on in the semester because uh, we'll be dealing with archaeological things in the Book of Mormon in a different class. That's a good point got to try and cut these things up so I have time to cover them in just one class period. Yeah, what
0: oh. was number three again?
1: Well, it was, why does the Book of Mormon quote the Bible? First question is, why does the Book of Mormon exist at all? And that's a very fundamental question, and I think it's the one that I, that I hear certainly a great deal. Certainly for most people who think that the Bible is all that there is, that the Bible is completely God's Word, there is no more. And from that perspective, I often hear the question, well, the Book of Mormon doesn't even deserve to exist, there is no more of God's Word. And since the Book of Mormon claims to be God's Word, obviously it isn't, because the Book of Mor because the Bible is all that there is. Now, let me give you a, a wonderful response. It doesn't originate with me, but just pretend it does for a second. Um, if the Bible is the complete word of God, then there is a great defect in that book, i.e. the Bible. Because nowhere in the Bible does it state that the Bible is the complete word of God. Okay, you got that? Secondly, therefore, for one to know for a fact that the Bible is the complete word of God, in order for them to know that to be true, they would have had to have found out by a direct revelation from God that is outside the Bible. And if that's the case, then the Bible is still not the complete word of God because they're claiming revelation outside the Bible. Now, I would love to take credit for that. However, I'm merely paraphrasing Joseph Smith. And uh, Joseph Smith laid that out, and it's a, a wonderful and complete argument concerning that. Uh, the fact that the Book of Mormon would receive this kind of reception when it was once published to the world was prophesied in the Book of Mormon itself in Second Nephi, chapter 29. And I find that what the Book of Mormon says concerning the subject is an extremely persuasive argument as well. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 29, and going on through verse 10, listen to this. Listen to how convincing this is. And because my words, talking about the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon shall hiss forth, many of the Gentiles shall say, a Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. And that is indeed what we hear. But thus says the Lord God, O fools, they shall have a Bible, And it shall proceed forth from the Jews, mine ancient covenant people. And what thank they the Jews for the Bible which they receive from them? Yea, what do the Gentiles mean? Do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Gentiles? O ye Gentiles, have ye remembered the Jews, my ancient covenant people? Nay, but you have cursed them and have hated them and have not sought to recover them. But behold, I be upon your eye, the Lord, have not forgotten my people. He continues, Thou fool that shall say, A Bible, we have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Have you obtained a Bible, save it were by the Jews? Know you not that there are more nations than one? Know you not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are, up, are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath? And I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth. Wherefore murmur ye, or in other words, why do you murmur? Because that you shall receive more of my word. Isn't that a good question? Why on earth should you complain because God's going to try and give you some more of his word? Don't you know that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another? Wherefore, I speak the same words unto one nation, like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. And I do this, that I may prove unto many that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that I speak forth my words according to my own pleasure. And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another. For my work is not yet finished, neither shall it be until the end of man, neither from that time henceforth and forever. Wherefore, because you have a Bible, you need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need you suppose that I have not caused more to be written. And that's verses 3 through 10 in chapter 29 of Second Nephi. This is a wonderful instance in which a question can be answered idly, quite effectively, from the Book of Mormon. And I can't imagine any reasonable person not being swayed by what it says here. In another place, Joseph Smith stated, uh, about people uh, making this claim that uh, he said, we uh, see I'm going to have to paraphrase now because it just came to mind but he said, does it remain for a people who don't have faith enough to call down one scrap of revelation from heaven to say how much God can speak and how much he can't yes just the arrogance of that concept of someone feeding them the authority to tell God to shut up I think that's correct. It is terribly arrogant when you look at it from that point of view. However, I can understand the other point of view, too, and I'm sure you can, which is, if you don't have living prophets, and if you don't have living apostles, and no communication with God, then it must not be Yes! And you better <laughs> hang on to that Bible for all it's worth. And it better be infallible, because otherwise you're up a creek. Like teachers pointed out, they simply turned the folk into paper. That was 2 Nephi chapter 29, verses 3-10 through 10 in the Book of Mormon, certainly. Um, now, the Bible does not say that the Bible is all there is. In other words, there are many uh, people who think that there are quotes in the Bible that do say that the Bible is all there is. And I think that usually those are specious, but I want to examine some of those so that you'll be familiar with them. Um... Let's turn to the Bible. First one, which I suppose is the grand granddaddy of them all, is Revelations chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. And I see some heads nodding. This isn't going to be new to a lot of you, I know. But Revelations 22, 18 and 19, which appears in the end of the Bible. And that becomes part of the argument. Where John says, for I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Verse 19 says the same thing, except if any man shall take away from the words of this prophecy. God shall take away his part out of the book of life, etc. But mainly they're in verse 18. So the argument here, basically, is that when John's saying this book, he's referring to the Bible, all right? Now, there are three basic ways that uh, you can answer this. You can pick your pick. First off, which is usually understood, is that when uh, John is saying this book, he's not talking about the Bible, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of books. It comes from Biblia, which means library. It's 66 books, at least the version that we have in the King James Version. So that's one thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible wasn't even collected in this form. with These 66 books until 1627. All right, The New Testament wasn't collected until centuries after John made this statement. Therefore, it's very unlikely he was referring to the Bible. The second one is that uh, the general interpretation of this is that anything received and written down after this then is adding to the word of God, and therefore is uh, null and void, I suppose. But most scholars agree that John, after he left the Isle of Patmos, which is, of course, where this was written, it was after that time that he wrote his gospel and the three epistles that appear in the New Testament. So does that mean that John wrote down things that are null and void and we shouldn't have in the Bible? I find usually that, even though those are persuasive, the most convincing thing is that what it says here is that uh, if any man shall add into these things, well, the Mormons have never testified, have never taught, that a man added unto the words of God. What we have always testified is what we just read in the Book of Mormon, that God did and God can, and people shouldn't tell God that he can't. So those are three main ways that you can uh, respond to this. It's amazing how many people who don't know anything more about the Bible than the Ten Commandments also know this verse. It's uh, <laughs> its surprising to me. It just seems to be one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Uh, another one that's often used is found in First Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, it says this, Fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. This used to show that uh, prophecy ceased. And so did tongues for people who don't believe in tongues either. Or I guess people who don't believe in knowledge, if you take it down to the third one, whether it be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Though I think that would probably be heavenly knowledge received from heaven, taken in context. Um, the basically, the, be- the best way, I think, to uh, respond to this is simply to read it in context and read down the next two verses, which says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, all Paul's saying here is that right now, as he says elsewhere, he says, right now it's like looking through a glass darkly. Or I guess if you were to interpret that into today's terms, it's kind of like looking through the bottom of a Coca-Cola bottle as opposed to seeing things with your eyes. Everything's kind of misty and hazy, and you can't really see things too good. That's because we don't have that direct communication, I mean, that direct God living with us personally. But he says that we have prophecies and tongues and this knowledge from God for now, because now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Then prophecy is going to cease. And when that which is perfect has come, what time do you suppose that is? Jesus
0: Christ?
1: Sure. When God is dwelling in our midst. When God is dwelling in our midst, do you suppose we're going to have to have prophecy? No. We're not going to have to have these things because we're going to have God directly with us. And this is all that this verse is saying. It's not saying that prior to the second coming, prophecy would cease. Um... Let's also go to Matthew 11:13, in which uh, it states this, which is also often used to show that there aren't going to be any more prophets. Matthew 11:13, 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, meaning John the Baptist, all the prophets prophesied until John. So if they all prophesied until John. They're not going to be prophesying anymore. That's all the prophets that there were until John is what this is showing. And after that, no more need for that. What about Agabus? That's a good question. What about Agabus? Who's Agabus? He was a prophet. Right. But when we're did he live? Right. He lived after the death and resurrection of Christ. Exactly. That's a great example. We've got prophets after this. So what is uh, Matthew getting at here when he's quoting Christ saying this for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John? What they're talking about is that they prophesied of Jesus Christ's coming. He's saying all these prophets prophesied of Christ coming up until John, and then Christ came. I so that the Apostle John is not a prophet. Uh, no, I don't think so. I th- I think he might be including him. I think he might be that might be including them up and until John, but I don't know. Paul's letter to the Ephesians mentioned prophets and apostles is foundation. Well, I guess they would say the foundation is past. Yeah and we'll get into that yeah, in another lesson too agony, so. it's very difficult it is so, but that's what, they, what he meant they all prophesied of Christ until Christ came of course, after Christ came you're not going to have anybody prophesying about Christ's coming anymore okay so that's uh, what it's referring to there you can also talk about the revelation that John received on the Isle of Patmos, which is about 96 AD and that's the whole book of Revelation there So certainly revelation was being received and was considered necessary in the church after the time of Christ. The last one I want to bring up, which is also quite commonly used, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's see, 2 Timothy 3 and verses 14 through 17, which says this. Of course, Paul's writing to Timothy and he's uh, counseling him. He says, but continue... In the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, i.e. me, an apostle, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished, unto all good works." Well, now, you may not have heard anything in there that sounds anything like the Bible's supposed to be over, but here's how the argument runs anyway. It says that uh, the Scriptures, you have known them, verse 15, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Now, if the Scriptures are able to make you wise into salvation, or in other words, Timothy wise unto salvation, then why is there a need for any more, since he had enough to make him wise unto salvation? Which did not include the New Testament. Right. That's what he studied after his childhood. Exactly. That's exactly right. And most this uh, particular reference and almost any other that comes up can be dealt with in this simple way, which is something that Orson Pratt advocated and used a great deal. All he had was the Old Testament. Those are sufficient to make him wise in salvation-rated context. Therefore, should we get rid of the New Testament? And also, uh, the other part of the argument is that it says in verse 16, taking it out of context, all scripture is given. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. <laughs> but seriously. Uh, I've heard that many times. All scripture is given, therefore there is no more. Which, of course, would exclude uh, revelations and many other parts of the Bible that were written after this letter was written. Um, Finally, the question is often asked on the subject, isn't the Bible sufficient? Which, in in other words, states, you know, what does the Book of Mormon have to add to it? Isn't the Bible sufficient? And I find that a very good response to that is, look around you in the world. There are over 1,800 different sects of Christianity, all claiming the Bible as their authoritative source, all believing and teaching different doctrines uh, and ordinances, and etc. Add, add another zero to that, you know, like eighteen thousand. Really? Well, there's a big number, aren't right there? A whole num, a whole big number. And so what I'm saying is, the Bible is obviously not sufficient. <coughs> if it were sufficient, there would be only one church, only one interpretation from the Bible. But the fact that there are so many different denominations shows that the Bible alone is not sufficient. Going down to question number two, which is, why is the Book of Mormon written in King James English? You know, with all the vows and the these and the the shouts and the shoulds, and you've got all those different things in King James English. Uh, A certain anti-Mormon named Walter Martin gets a great deal of mileage out of this, saying, uh, well, of course, God speaks in King James English. And everybody laughs at that. And immediately he's got him on his side. I'd like to quote you here from a scholar in the church named Hugh Nibley. And he answers this question quite well. This is what he says. He restates the question. Uh, Why did Joseph Smith, a 19th century American farm boy, translate the Book of Mormon into 17th century King James English instead of into contemporary language? By the way, this is from uh, Church News, July 29th, 1961, Uh, from pages 10 and 15. All right. The first thing to note is that the contemporary language of the country people of New England 130 years ago, from the time that was written, 130 years ago was not so far from King James English. Even the New England writers of later generations like Webster, Melville, and Emerson lapse into its stately periods and these and thous in their loftier passages. So the first thing to note is it wasn't that different from what they spoke back then. Then he says, for that matter, we, sh- we still pray in that language and teach our small children to do the same. And what he says here is that even today we recognize that there's a special type of speech in which we uh, address God or talk about God using these and nows. He talks about a personal experience. He says, my old Hebrew and Arabic teacher, Professor Popper, would throw a student out of the class who did not use thee and now when he constructed uh, biblical passages. This is the word of God, he would cry indignantly. This is the Bible. Let us show a little respect. Let us have a little formal English here. One can think of lots of arguments for using King James English in the Book of Mormon, but the clearest comes out of very recent experience. In the past decade, as you know, and so that would have been the 50s he was talking about there, certain ancient non-biblical texts discovered near the Dead Sea, i.e. the Dead Sea Scrolls, have been translated by modern, up-to-date American readers. I open at random a modern Protestant scholar's modern translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what do I read? So here's a modern interpretation, at least 1950, by a uh, Protestant scholar. And this is what he reads. Thine is the battle. And by the strength of thy hand, their corpses were scattered without burial. Goliath the Gittite, a mighty man of valor, thou didst deliver into the hand of thy servant David. So he makes the point... He does it with a few other references, but I think that'll suffice for now. He makes a point, then, that even to different scriptures, they put it in special language, which is basically King James language. King James English. They do that even today. Going on now to question number three. Why does the Book of Mormon quote the Bible? Now, this problem is set forth very well, by B.H. Roberts in an article he wrote for the Improvement Era, January 1904, pages 179 through 176. And here he states uh, the problem. He's responding to a person who wrote asking this question. He says, first, it is a fact that a number of passages in the Book of Mormon, verses and whole chapters, run closely parallel in matter and phraseology with passages in Isaiah, Malachi, and some parts of the New Testament. Second, it is a fact that no two persons will take the same manuscript and make translations from one language into another and the language of the two translations be alike. Or I think what he means there is be identical. Third, it is a fact that the translations of the words of Isaiah, of Malachi, and the words of the Savior in the Book of Mormon are generally supposed to be independent translations from different manuscripts or records and from different languages. Okay? Then he finishes it off, says, then, of course, comes your point. How can the strange fact be accounted for, i.e., that the translation in the Book of Mormon corresponding to Isaiah, Malachi, and the words of the Savior are in the language of the King James translation? All right. First, I want to deal with uh, Isaiah briefly. Generally, when people bring this up, they're under this impression that there's some great secret in the church about this. are a bunch of ignorant adults who never have read the Bible, are told not to read it, and therefore have no idea that the Book of Mormon is quoting from the King James Version. Now, you and I know that there's no secret about it. Isaiah's being quoted. Nephi, the writer in the Bible who loves him so much and talks about how great a prophet he was, says, hey, everybody, I'm going to quote from Isaiah now. And then he does it. There's no secret there. If you look in the headings, in the Book of Mormon it even says compare Isaiah chapter 29 compare Isaiah chapter 5 or whatever it is so there's no secret about this at all Malachi anybody know offhand where Malachi comes up in the Book of Mormon right so where did that come from (coughs) Christ says look you didn't have this on your brass plates and of course that's where Isaiah came from they had the brass plates with them they took them that's part of the Book of Mormon it tells that in the Book of Mormon rather they didn't have Malachi Christ comes and says you didn't have this these are important and when you read them you know they're important and Christ says I'm going to give them to you so write them down and he does there's no secret about that finally uh, the words of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount where he addresses the Nephites in a manner similar to the Sermon on the Mount there's no secret about that either on each of the tops of the three chapters it says see Matthew 5 see Matthew 6 see Matthew 7 and compare them There is absolutely no secret about that, and you as well as I know how much uh, emphasis there is placed in the church upon reading all the standard works at least once every four years in Sunday school class. Now, whether that gets done as often as it should or not, you be the judge. Um, The solution that B.H. Roberts came up with, and by the way, note this. He'll say it too, but note that this is speculation. Okay? It seems to be logical speculation, but the fact is that nobody knows what really because one man did it. And that was Joseph Smith. And he never went into a whole lot of detail about it. All that he told us was that he did it by the gift and power of God. So B. H. Roberts here admits that this is speculation. And he was a member of the presidency of the uh, First Council, First Quorum of Seventy, back around the turn of the century. Um, He says, with this remembered, I think we find a solution of the difficulty you present in the following way. When Joseph Smith saw that the Nephite record was quoting the prophecies of Isaiah, of Malachi, or the words of the Savior, he took the English Bible and compared those passages as far as they paralleled each other. And finding that in substance, in thought, they were alike, he adopted our English translation. And hence we have the sameness to which you refer. He goes on to say it should be understood also in this connection that while Joseph Smith obtained the facts and ideas from the Nephite characters through the inspiration of God, he was left to express those facts and ideas in the main in such language as he could command. And when he found that parts in the Nephite record closely paralleled passages in the Bible and being conscious that the language of our English Bible was superior to his own, he adopted it, except for those differences indicated in the Nephite original which here and there make the Book of Mormon version of passages superior in sense and clearness. Of course, I recognize the fact that this is but a conjecture. That's where he says it's conjecture. But I believe it should be a reasonable one. I also want to quote something here from uh, Hugh Nibley, but I want to do it after this. Uh, this goes along very much with the principle we're taught in this church, that God never does anything for man or woman that they can't do for themselves. I found that to be true in my life, perhaps you have too. He never gives you something that you can't get for yourself. And I think this falls in perfectly with what happened here. Now, many people have supposed that uh, I think translating from the Book of Mormon was just a a snap process. You just kind of look into the old magic spectacles, and there it is, and you just, you know, rip it right off. This was not the case. Uh, I think that's proven from Doctrine and Covenants section 9 when Oliver Cowdery attempted to translate. Do you remember that from church history? Oliver Cowdery attempted to translate. I think he thought it was going to be a breeze. I think he thought all you had to do was look and there it was and write it out. But the Lord told him that such was not the case. But that you had to go ahead and you had to study it out in your mind. You had to pray about it. And if it was right, if the translation was right, he would cause your bosom to burn within you. If not, you would have a stupor of thought with talking about You forget that translation. That was wrong. And you could go ahead. This was something that required a great deal of effort. And when Joseph Smith came to those places, as B.H. Roberts conjectures, it's most likely he recognized it for what it was. I mean, it had big red flags all over it. I'm going to be quoting Isaiah now. And he went to the Bible and he compared them. And when it was the, the sense in the King James Version was along with what was in the place, he copied that. But where it was different, as it was quite often. He we went ahead and made variations in that, which, as B. H. Roberts says, and quite accurately, are in many cases superior to, actually, in all cases, uh, superior to what is found in the Bible. I want to quote from Hugh Nibley again about this. Now, can we find this? It should be up here. Yes. Um, the next most devastating argument against the Book of Mormon was that it actually quoted the Bible. The early critics were simply staggered by the incredible stupidity of including large sections of the Bible in a book which they insisted was specifically designed to fool the Bible-reading public. They screamed blasphemy and plagiarism at the top of their lungs. But today, and this is in 61, but today any biblical scholar knows that it would be an extremely suspicious circumstance if a book purporting to be the product of a society of pious immigrants from Jerusalem in ancient times did not quote the Bible. No lengthy religious writing of the Hebrews could conceivably be genuine if it was not full of scriptural quotations. He goes on. As to the passages lifted bodily from the King James Version, we first ask, how else does one quote scripture if not bodily? And why should anyone quoting the Bible to American readers of 1830 not follow the only version of the Bible known to them? Which, of course, was the King James Version or the authorized version. Actually, the Bible passages quoted in the Book of Mormon often differ from the King James Version, but where the latter is correct, there is every reason why it should be followed. Now listen closely to this. When Jesus and the apostles, and for that matter the angel Gabriel, quote the scriptures in the New Testament, do they recite from some mysterious Ur text? Do they quote the prophets of old in the ultimate original? Or do they give their own inspired translations? No, they do not. They quote the Septuagint, a Greek version of the Old Testament prepared in the 3rd century before Christ. Why so? Because that happened to be the received standard version of the Bible accepted by the readers of the Greek New Testament. When holy men of God quote the scriptures, it is always the received standard version of the people they are addressing. We do not claim that the King James Version or the Septuagint are the original scriptures, In fact, nobody on earth today knows where the original scriptures are or what they say. Inspired men have in every age been content to accept the received version of the people among whom they labored with the spirit giving correction where correction was necessary. Since the Book of Mormon is a translation, with all its faults, into English for English-speaking people whose fathers for generations had known no other scriptures but the standard English Bible, it would be both pointless and confusing to present the scriptures to them in any other form so far as their teachings were correct. All right. I talked a little bit about superior translations found in the Book of Mormon over that in the Bible. I want to go to a few of those just to give you a few examples. First off, dealing with Isaiah, you notice that uh, Hugh Nibley mentioned the Septuagint. That was a Greek version of the Old Testament coming from about the third century before Christ. Now, the King James Version was not translated from the Septuagint. It was translated from a separate version of the Old Testament, a Hebrew vision, the Masoretic Ma- text. Thank you. I look for uh, Brother Still's knowing nods to make sure I'm on the right track in all these things. which is a completely different version. Um, if we look at Isaiah 48:14, which is cited in the Book of Mormon in 1 Nephi 20:14, the Book of Mormon text appears to follow the Septuagint, which is many hundreds of years older than the Masoretic text upon which the King James version is based. The King James Version says this, All ye assemble yourselves and hear which among them hath declared these things. The Septuagint says, And they shall all be gathered together and shall hear who announced these things to them. Note that phrase to them, which is absent. The Mormon seems to restore this phrase from the Septuagint. Quote, All ye assemble yourselves and hear who among them hath declared these things unto them. That underlined phrase is restored in the Book of Mormon. Um, let me give you another one of these examples. This one I think is even more striking. It's uh, in Isaiah 2.16, which is quoted in 2 Nephi 12.16. Um, in the King James Version, this is what it says. Now, it might be hard to get this just from listening, but try if you can, okay? Let me give you a brief overview. The King James Version seems to have lost a line that the Septuagint has. Similarly, the Septuagint seems to have lost the line that that the King James Version has. The Book of Mormon, however, has all three of the lines. It has the one that the King James Version lost, the one that the Septuagint lost, plus the one that's similar to both. So listen, The the King James Version says, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. The Septuagint says, and upon every ship of the sea, and upon every display of fine ships. Finally, the Book of Mormon ties them all together and says, and upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. This is what Dr. Sidney B. Sperry has observed regarding this passage. The Book of Mormon suggests that the original text of this verse contained three phrases, all of which commenced with the same opening words, and upon all. By a common accident, the original Hebrew, and hence the King James Version text, lost the first phrase, which was, however, preserved by the Septuagint. The latter lost the second phrase. In other words, the Septuagint lost the second phrase and seems to have corrupted the third phrase. The Book of Mormon preserved all three phrases. Scholars may suggest that Joseph Smith took the first phrase from the Septuagint. The prophet did not know Greek, and there is no evidence that he had access to a copy of the Septuagint in 1829 and 1830 when he translated the Book of Mormon. So here are things coming out that Joseph Smith had no access to and no knowledge of. I'm going to go ahead and... uh Yeah what that verse is that it is find it in the book of mormon in second nephi 1216 and in the 1981 version there's a special footnote describing exactly what happened there and that'll help describe it for you Okay, let me go ahead to uh, malachi in which there's an interesting difference that joseph smith made from the way it's found in the old testament in malachi chapter 4 it says this but unto you that fear my name shall the son capital s u n the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. From this, it would almost seem like uh, we're dealing with sun worshippers, because S-U-N here in the Old Testament. However, when Christ gave it to the Nephites, and when Joseph Smith translated that section, it's as follows: But unto you that fear my name shall the son, capital S-O-N shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up his calves in the stall. We begin to understand. Where is that? Where is that? That's 3 uh, Nephi 25.2. For that cross-reference. Let me just give you a few from uh, the Sermon on the Mount as well, which Christ gave to the Nephites once he got over here. Actually, the very first day he arrived. He gave them what is in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, notice that this was apparently, uh, many of the ideas, at least, in the Sermon on the Mount, were some sort of a style. Now, there's another sermon found in Luke called the Sermon on the Plain, which follows in large part that there are some differences the sermon which Christ gave in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Many scholars believe that these are two different sermons that were given at two different places, and yet he repeated many of those ideas. All we find him doing now in 3 Nephi is repeating this same sermon, and yet there are some differences. For instance, uh, 3 Nephi 12, 3, 12, 3 says this. Well, let me compare it first with Matthew five three. Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We say that a lot, I think, uh, Christians today, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Why should people who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven? When Christ addressed the Nephites, he added this phrase. Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit, who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden we start nodding our heads and saying, yeah, that makes sense to me. Now the fourth beatitude, which is in Matthew 5, 6, says, Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. When Christ addressed the Nephites, he added this phrase, Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost making that passage much clearer. I want to address one more of these changes and then move on since we're running out of time. Uh, later on, I don't have a reference to this, but it's later on in the uh, the sermon, and you'll recognize it. From the King James Version, it says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You're familiar with that. I mean, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Right. Probably the best known set of scriptures in the Bible. The Book of Mormon says this it without a cause. It says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. It doesn't give you the out by saying if you have a cause and you're angry with your brother, it's okay. He says if you're angry with your brother, period, then you're in danger of the judgment. The phrase without a cause, by the way, has been discovered by scholars to be a late interpolation into the New Testament text and cannot be found in the oldest New Testament manuscripts. The modern Bible translations follow the Book of Mormon. Did you hear that? The modern Bible translations follow the Book of Mormon by omitting the phrase. These older manuscripts were unavailable in Joseph Smith's day. Of course, he just had the King James Version. So we see that actually today Bible scholars are following what the Book of Mormon did and making some of the corrections. Um, I'd like to move on now. To about all the changes that have been made in the Book of Mormon, um, you get different amounts, but uh, generally the phrase is that there have been over 3,000 changes been made in the Book of Mormon since it first came off the press in 1830. Uh, generally, uh, to make the stick, people have to set up a straw man, okay? And the straw man approach means that you simply set up something which the opponent doesn't believe in the first place, but it, it's easy to destroy. So you set up the straw man and then you tear it down and then you act as if you've actually defeated your opponent, when actually you haven't, you just defeated the straw man. Here's how it works here. In order to set up a straw man, they have to demonstrate that the Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon was absolutely perfect in grammar in spelling in punctuation when it came off the press in 1830. And if they can do that, then they can say, well, look at all these changes that have been made. What's wrong? We should never allow them to set up that straw man because it's simply not correct. H. Roberts, It was the ideas were inspired of God, but Joseph Smith, a young backwards farm boy with no better than a third grade education at the time, had to put those divine ideas as best he could into his language. And he did that as best he could. Um, let me show you something. This is an interesting uh, visual aid. The tanners who are rabid anti-Mormons, spent I don't know how much time, if you can imagine, going through the Book of Mormon, 1830 edition, comparing it with today's version, and counting all the little nitpicky changes that have been made. Most of which is punctuation. Exactly. If you look at this closer afterward, you'll see this. We've got a word deleted, and the word was to, T-O, makes a big difference. Which was changed to who, is was changed to are, etc., this type of thing. And here we have two pages of the Book of Mormon shown in which 25 changes were made. Okay? And you can come up here. Uh, Remember was changed to rememberist. Really changes the meaning, right? Okay. Now, if we look over here, though, we'll find the Bible, the King James Version, and we can see the difference between the 1611 text and the text that we have today. And all the changes that have been made. Note also that this is one page of the Bible. It's the first page of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And if we do a count here, of all the changes, there have been more than 400 changes on this one page alone. They didn't to be inspired. Exactly. And you have to be careful, because I actually had one person say that, I said, well, we never claimed the Bible to be perfect. Boy, if anybody falls into your lap like that, you're just going to have to resist chewing them up and spitting them out, I guess. But, uh, so, yes, the Bible's had many, many more changes. But again, these are grammatical. These aren't substantive changes since the 1611. I think we know that the more substantive changes that existed or deletions came long before that time. From Joseph Smith didn't do the original punctuation. Publisher right. Did it. Right. He, I mean, he brought the manuscript to the publisher. It was one sentence. That's that's right. There was very little in it. And as a matter of fact, uh, let me go ahead and pick this up because I think that's a, a notable mark in favor of the Book of Mormon as actually being what it claimed to be—a dictation. A dictation, which is what Joseph Smith said he dictated it to Oliver Cowdery, who wrote it down um let me see yeah the main uh changes were made uh, to correct spelling correct grammar correct punctuation uh another big thing was to change the text in order to conform it to the original manuscript because differences had crept in so i don't think it's a great crime to try and change the text in order to make mistakes conform to what the original was and yet a great number of those changes have been for that uh reason And there were a certain number of revisions that were made by Joseph Smith to provide further clarification. Um, Now, once again, this is usually uh, implied that this is a great secret to Mormons, that it's all kept in the dark, that they have no idea about this. And yet, uh, just a few years ago, the Church authorized a reprinting of the original 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, in which would have all those different things in it. So this isn't a very good way to keep these kinds of things a secret, is to make them available to the public. Um, in addition, every edition, there was the 1830 edition, 1837, 1840, and also uh, the 1981 edition, uh, which had some of these uh, changes for grammatical reasons. Each one in the flyleaf stated exactly what they were doing. Let me see if I can uh, find that for you. Here we go. Harley P. Pratt, who uh, was the main editor of the 1837 edition has this, quote, Individuals acquainted with book printing are aware of the numerous typographical errors which always occur in manuscript editions. It is only necessary to say that the whole has been carefully re-examined and compared with the original manuscripts by Elder Joseph Smith, Jr., the translator of the Book of Mormon, assisted by the present printer, Brother Oliver Cadbury, who formerly wrote the greatest portion of the same as dictated by Brother Smith. So, it's saying right there, Look, we've made some uh, corrections to make it conform with the original and in order to correct grammar and such. If you probably haven't noticed this, if you have, you have a better eye than most people. But a similar statement was made in the 1981 edition of the Book of Mormon. It's kind of at the bottom of page here. They once again went back to the original manuscript. Errors that have been perpetuated for quite a long time. None of them really serious or anything. But uh, this is what it says here. It's under a brief explanation about the Book of Mormon. Okay? That's right after the uh, history Joseph Smith gives. In the bottom page, it says about this edition. Quote, Some minor errors in the text have been perpetuated in past editions of the Book of Mormon. This edition contains corrections that seem appropriate to bring the material into conformity with pre-publication manuscripts and early editions edited by the prophet Joseph Smith. Unquote. So this is an ongoing idea, I think, that with the 1981 edition, they've, they've finally gotten around to getting most of them. Uh, just in a, a brief couple of minutes, I'd like to share a couple of those with you that have been made in order to get it back to the original meaning. If you turn to 1 Nephi 13, there on page 24, does that help? And uh, verse 4, you find it says, And it came to pass that I saw among the nations of the Gentiles the formation of a great church. And he says in 5, and the angel said unto me, Behold, the formation of a church, etc., etc. Well, in every edition up to this edition, there was a slight error in spelling made which changed formation into a different word. And in those editions, it says foundation. So uh, it would say, Among the nations of the Gentiles, the foundation of a great church. And when I joined the church in 78, that's how I read the Book of Mormon, Foundation of a Great Church. There's not a great deal of difference there. But the problem was, of course, that uh, they didn't have nice computer runoff sheets back in that time, and you had to have Oliver Cowdery's handwriting, who, I don't know how great a a scriptwriter he was, but I don't care how good you are after you've penned uh, 100 pages of foolscap paper, you've got to have writer's cramp to some degree. And formation was incorrectly read as foundation at the time. There are a few more, um, I just want to give two more, then I'll close, and we'll get to the rest of this next week. Um, Interesting and perhaps even humorous errors that were made because of a misreading of Oliver Cowdery's uh, handwriting. I assume it was Oliver Cowdery because he wrote the most. It could have been someone else's. Um, Alma 16.5. Uh, at this point, the Lamanites had taken Nephite prisoners of war. Zoram, chief Nephite army captain, went to Alma the prophet and asked him to inquire of the Lord concerning the prisoners. Until 1981, all printed editions read, quote, Therefore they went unto him to know whether the Lord would that they should go in search of their brethren, unquote. Okay. The original manuscripts reads whither the difference between an E and I, rather than whether, and it was corrected to read so in the nineteen eighty one version. For years the interpretation had been whether, in other words, if the Nephites should go in search of their brethren. The true meaning is rather whither, where they should go. The printer's manuscript contains a rather awkward correction from weather to wither, showing that this had been discovered long ago, but the correction was not assimilated into the scripture until the 1981 edition. So these are the types of changes that were made to make it correct uh, and conform to the original manuscript. Now, I want you to think for a moment, as we leave this subject, the futility of counting up all these errors and trying to make a big deal about them these tiny little things, many of them, to make it conform to the original, the rest punctuation and spelling, but counting every one so you can get as big a number as possible. In fact, there's a little comic strip I have about this. It has to do, it. So you can see it perhaps here. In the first panel, it says there's an anti-Mormon crusade going on, and there's a guy out here on a cliff about ready to jump off. Not cliff, the, the ledge of the building, about ready to jump off, and he looks very discouraged. And the person sticking his head off the window and saying, Why, Melvin? And so Melvin responds, he says, in two years of intensive scrutiny, I found four million changes in the latest edition of the Book of Mormon. So the first Mormon I show it to says, so what? And he quotes 1 Nephi 19.6, Jacob 7.26, 3 Nephi 8, one and 2, Moroni 8.12, Ether 51, 12.23 through 25, etc. etc. And then they both jump off the ledge in the second panel. So all that work gone to waste. And what these references are saying is, these are Book of Mormon prophets stating in the record, look, this is just a work of men. We have our faults. Remember what Moroni said? That's one of these. He says, Lord, I fear that when the Gentiles shall see the weakness of my writing, they will laugh. And do you remember what the Lord said to him? Fools mock, but they shall mourn. Exactly. Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And uh, a similar idea is given in the very opening the title page. ...of the Book of Mormon. And we will really close here, honest and truly. But the title page of the Book of Mormon, I think we all know that it says that this is... ...what the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to testify of Jesus Christ, especially. But the very last sentence says this. And this was written by Moroni, remember, but not by like <coughs> Joseph Smith. And now, if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God, that you may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. It almost seems like there he's restating what the Lord had said to him when he complained to him there in the Book of Ethan. Where? Where? On the title page. The title page. And it's at the very last sentence. And if you want to come up afterward, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll read those references or I'll let you look at those references so you can write them down to the ones in the Book of Mormon itself. I want you to know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. It truly is. I know that without a shadow of a doubt because it's been revealed to me by God himself. And I kind of feel personally that once God has told me that this is true and I know that he has, I don't know that I should really pay too much attention to what other people might say. Now lead us with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
0: So that concludes Lecture 2 of Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith. I hope you're enjoying this stroll down memory lane as much as I am. If you feel moved upon to make a contribution to Radio Free Mormon, I'd like you to do that right now. Just go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution today. I'm encouraging all listeners to this program to make a $10 continuing contribution, $10 a month, toward Radio Free Mormon. Your contribution will help ensure that Radio Free Mormon continues to spread its message behind enemy lines. Of course, that $10 a month is merely a suggestion. Feel free to go over and above that $10 a month if you feel moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Some listeners to this program have commented that they simply do not have any money that they can possibly spare to contribute to the program. If that is your case, please do not feel pressured by me. Instead, I would encourage you to share this program with as many of your friends and family as possible. Radio Free Mormon Mania starts here. Won't you help? not only with well-deserved critiques and reviews of church teachings, leadership, and policies, but also with programs such as this, which helps answer commonly heard criticisms of the LDS Church and makes a way for members to remain faithful, if that is their desire. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.